Okay, so what I'm going to do, what I want to try to do is I'm going to talk a little more broadly of the kind of work that we do at the Institute, particularly from the policy, political angle. Uh, I want to situate the way I think of what we're trying to do. And then my colleague Steve, Don, Alon will be talking in more specifics of the subject areas that they're focused on and we'll get into the content a little bit more. But I want to try to frame a little bit of the way we approach policy and trying to get sort of political change occurring. Um, and I'm going to focus, because there, we have at the Institute, a focus on business, though it might not always be apparent. And I want to stress what I think it is. If a battle for freedom and for capitalism is to succeed, I think business has to play a central role, and in a very particular way. And that's what I'm going to talk about uh, in, in my remarks. Um, I'm going to try to keep it uh, to 20 minutes. And I want to stress that it, in terms of policy and, and the political angle, but really of the work that the Institute does as a whole, our focus is on the positive. It's on trying to achieve something. And it might not always look like that, um, because politics, um, if you if you're have a, anything like a framework of what the original Constitution and Declaration of Independence were about and what their animating spirit is, we've drifted so far away from that that a lot of political commentary that we do can look negative and it can look like what all that we're doing is sort of picking holes in various positions. And there's a sort of atmosphere that it's hopeless, um, we're on a sinking ship, but we'll go down fighting. And there is that kind of atmosphere. So there's this kind of perception, and it's understandable. And I want to stress that that's not our perspective. But it's understandable that the perception is, um, you know, there's the rumor that Facebook is getting a dislike button. Like, we're really clamoring for that, because we, there's a lot of things that we can, stories in our articles, that we can hit the dislike button. And it is, I mean, that that creates a kind of atmosphere that we're at the crossroads of discouraged and hopeless. <clears throat> um, and, but this is not what the Institute is actually about. And I think it's important that this is not what Ayn Rand was about. When you think about what Ayn Rand was trying to do, it's not a focus on the negative. It's a focus on positives, and it's a focus on values. To take one of her favorite things, we're in one of her, I mean, we're in her favorite city, New York City. What animates her books and her writing, both fiction and nonfiction, is a focus on producers, creators, um, the, the innovators, the thinkers that have made the Western world and the prosperity that we enjoy today possible. Um, and this is what I think people most respond to about Ayn Rand. It is the positive. If you ask like, why the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged have millions of readers, it's because there's the stress on achievement on production and on the kind of people who are involved and, and their mind and ability and character of what is necessary in order to do that. And that is actually what our focus is in regard to our policy work. So if you ask, like, what are we trying to do? <clears throat> We're trying to bring a moral dimension to policy issues and political issues. And in particular, in a special kind of way, and this, I think, actually was Ayn Rand's Focus. So if you ask what the Institute is about in this arena, and you wanted to boil it down to one thing, I would put it, what we're about is justice. We're about the issue of justice, and justice for a group or a class of people who have never been accorded 
their due, <clears throat> who have never been acknowledged as good and in moral terms have been accorded moral praise. And that's, the, I mean, this is what Atlas Shrugged is about. It's the world, I mean, what is this group? It's business. And I put up two things that are regularly denounced and decried, Wall Street um, and the whole financial sector and any industry that leaves a footprint, I mean, a so-called footprint. Uh, so I put up some smokestacks. Business is regularly, I mean, you can't, I mean, you literally can't pick up a newspaper every, from whatever day you pick and find denunciations of business, of finance, of industry. <clears throat> um, and it, this, it's a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous injustice. And what the Institute is about in significant part in terms of the policy work is defending these kinds of things. But a focus on justice requires both. It requires a focus on what is wrong, what is going on that is bad, evil, that has to be opposed. There has to be, to achieve justice, you have to have a focus on that. And then you have to have a focus on, well, what, how should it be? What should the positives be? <clears throat> what does it mean to look up to business? Why should it be looked up to? And this is the kind of thing that we're particularly interested in and in, that animates our actual work. If you think of what these talks are just today, they all have a, a, a focus on business and defending business. So the talks today, here are two enormously successful businessmen, the Koch brothers. It is unbelievable, I find it actually scary, the way in which the Koch brothers are demonized in today's world. Um, and, and they have, I mean, they have an incredible amount of security around them and they need it. Um, <clears throat> this is, they are regularly attacked. And why are they attacked? Because they dare to speak. <clears throat> I mean, so the left and the, and the sort of the, the left-leaning people, there's an enormous focus on you should be politically involved and so on, you should go out and vote and so on. And then when they are politically involved, but they don't like their politics, it's, I mean, such incredible denunciation. And so they dare to speak in the responses, well, we need to silence them. And that's campaign finance and so on. And Steve will be talking about that. Or take another kind of issue so prominent in the culture. This is the inequality debate and the demonization of the so-called 1% and of the rich. And it, it, this is a real attack on business that they spread inequality like it's malaria or polio or something like that. They spread, and what is, the, what is the response then we need to shackle them? <clears throat> and so Don's work and what he'll be talking about is on this inequality debate and, and getting this right. And it's both you need to focus on what is wrong about these people who are making such a big deal about inequality and then how properly, properly to think about business and to think about wealth creation and so on. And that's the kind of work that, and the kind of focus that we're particularly interested in. Um, and even Alon, the foreign policy angle, he's going to be talking about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, you can't understand that conflict. Here's a picture of Tel Aviv, uh, a bustling, uh, productive place in the whole of Israel. I mean, you look at the technology, for instance, that's coming out of Israel. I mean, it's astonishing given the, the, the size of the population. And this is one of the main reasons that uh, Israel is now vilified, and it, and it fits into the whole framework of its capitalism and business that are the cause of war and that are the cause of trouble. 
<clears throat> and if you need to understand this conflict, you need to understand why Israel's a villain. And the whole, the whole idea of the peace process is to sacrifice Israel in some kind of way to the Palestinian cause. Um, so all these issues are about justice, and they are about how properly to think about these in terms of justice. And this is the, what animates our political work, and, it's, and it has a very moral perspective in regard to this. Um, and that moral perspective, okay, now my, my slides are not working off. So, um, the, it's easy to think for this, it's a moral battle, and it's easy for it to look help, hopeless. <clears throat> because you're trying to get people to change their moral views that are deeply entrenched. And it's easy to think, well, this is, the, it, this is it's a discouraging fight, and it's hopeless. But <clears throat> I think that is the wrong perspective. And it's helpful to look at it from the point of view that what this is about is justice. And seemingly hopeless causes um, can succeed and have succeed when you look through American history. And they've succeeded when they're put into the framework of what this is about is about justice. And so, so just if you think of sort of the, some major movements throughout American history, and if you, if you take with the start, the, the revolution and declaring independence, the idea that it was a foregone conclusion that the American revolutionaries are going to win and they're taking on the, the most powerful uh, nation at the time, which is Britain, that they're going to win and, oh, yeah, this is going to be easy and so on. No, I, it was easy to think this is hopeless. There were many dark days at the start of the revolution, um, and yet they were able to uh, endure and to win. And most of the major causes in uh, sort of American history are like this. Slavery and the abolition of slavery. I mean, if you're in the 1810s, 1820s, and you're an abolitionist, it's easy to think that this is a hopeless uh, struggle. The idea that you'll see in your lifetime the end of slavery. I mean, that is such wishful thinking at the time. And yet, they were able also to endure and to succeed. And both of these things are put in terms of justice. Another, the women's suffrage movement. Again, at its early stages, it's easy to think this will never happen. We don't have any power. We don't have political power. I mean, that's part of what this was about. How are we going to do anything? <clears throat> um, and yet, if you take a longer view perspective, they were able to succeed. The civil rights movement, taking on the Jim Crow. I mean, if you think at the early stages of that is that they're going to succeed, and they all think, oh, yeah, this is obvious that in a few years we're going to get rid of Jim Crow. Um, that looked like a hopeless cause as well. And take one last one, gay pride. <clears throat> At its early stages, when the gays are coming out and saying, like, we will not be treated in the way that we are, have been treated um, in these last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, <clears throat> this was, there was no assurance that this will succeed in the way that now today um, it is so much easier being gay than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. All of these at the outset look like hopeless causes, I think, <clears throat> and yet they're able to win. And all of these put the whole battle in terms of justice. 
<clears throat> and I think that that's sort of our focus, and there's a reason why that is our focus, because I think that it's a necessary. And there's a further point, I think, to learn from these causes. There's, if, if you think about how they work, there's a necessary condition that they're all relying on. It's necessary, not sufficient. I don't think it's the only thing you have to do. But there's a necessary condition for success. And that is that the victim has to stand up for himself. <clears throat> the victim has to say, I'm subject to injustice. And this is what justice would look like. And it's nothing like what the world looks like today. <clears throat> That's what in, in, in uh, all the accusations against King George and how the British were treating that. We're subject, in the Declaration of Independence, is we're subject to injustice and we're not going to put up with it anymore. <clears throat> the same with the fight against slavery. It was crucial that there were slaves and former slaves and blacks and saying, we do not accept this anymore. We do not accept this treatment. That's true of the women's suffrage movement. <clears throat> it's true of uh, the civil rights idea. And it's true of the gay pride. Um, so just to put up, if, if I just I didn't put up all five, but if you think of th these, what they're declaring is, we have too much self-esteem to put up with what we have put up. We are the subject to injustice. We're going to name that injustice. We're going to exhibit it. And we're going to demand something better than what. And that, I think, that is a, a dynamic at work in those movements. And this is what a fight for freedom would have to look at, like, I think. And this is part of what we're trying to encourage. And if you want sort of a contrast, unfortunately, I would put up the doctors. <clears throat> um, and if you think of the way in which we're moving towards complete government control of med medicine in a, in a sort of so semi-socialist, semi-fascist system, um, it is, there, were, there was a little bit, I think, in the 60s on the part of doctors to, say, to stand up and to say, no, we're not willing to take this. Uh, we're not servants of the people. We're not slaves. But that was very short-lived, not very powerful, I think, as it was articulated. And since then, it was the doctors accept the basic framework of the debate. And they might protest here and there and this regulation and that control. But it is not, it does not at all have the feel of we're subject to injustice and we will not stand for this. And that I think is what is necessary in regard to a fight. And this is what, if you, if you think about Ayn Rand's work and Ayn Rand's novels, this is a major element that they're pushing, um, that they're trying to get the better people in the world to think about. This is true from We the Living to Anthem to the Fountainhead, to Atlas Shrug. There's a major element of what is needed to fight injustice. I mean, We the Living is set in what's becoming communist Russia. Uh, Anthem is set in a dictatorship. And even the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are set in America in decline in various kinds of ways. And it is, in order to combat this, you need to stand up and you need to name the injustice in the in the context of painting a positive picture. But you have to do both. You have to focus on the negative and the positive. I mean, to take just one statement. I came here to say that I do not recognize anyone's right to one minute of my life. That's from Fountainhead, yeah. yeah and you can find similar statements in We the Living, uh, in Anthem, and in Atlas Shrugged. And this is a major element of that to fight injustice, the victim has to stand up and has to name it. And so, and this is what a fight for freedom 
and a fight for liberty would mean. And this is why I think there's a special role in regard to business. But just before transitioning to that, just to give an element of what this looks like in contemporary culture, <clears throat> this is a picture of Ahmed Mohammed. You may have seen this in the news, the 14-year-old Muslim boy who constructed a clock um, and brought it to school, and one of the teachers thought it was a bomb, and he ends up in handcuffs, and he's, and he's taken to the police station. I don't want to talk about the details of the case, because I don't think they're known. I don't think you can know about a case by reading newspapers. So there's a reason there's a police investigation and a legal system. That's when the facts actually come out. Because and I've read many conflicting things about what actually happened, and I don't know what happened. <clears throat> so what I want to focus on is sort of the cultural reaction to this and the way in which there were a whole bunch of Muslim groups that go on the airwaves, on TV, release press releases about, this is outrageous treatment, morally outrageous treatment. All the kid did was build a clock. He should be applauded for that, not demonized and put into handcuffs and taken to the police station. <clears throat> if you read some of the, the articles written about this, it is, look, what happened to innocent until proven guilty? And then there was even analysis in terms of preventive law. Like, the, OK, the fact that there's some Muslims who blow up things, and we, yeah, we had a, an attack at the uh, Boston Marathon. So that's not a reason to demonize and to then pen legally penalize the whole group of Muslims. And so it was put in preventive law that we're going to have laws to prevent you from doing something wrong before you've done it. <clears throat> that was the atmosphere in which this issue was talked about when it, it happened. Have you ever seen anything like that in regard to business? I mean, business, the whole regulatory state is, in essence, preventive law. It is you profit-seeking SOBs are going to screw up <clears throat> and make a mess of whatever, whether it's the economy when you're talking about the financial system. So that's what's going to happen in order to prevent that, in order to prevent it. It's preventive law. We need a whole regulatory state. Where is the moral outrage of that? Where is the moral outrage on the part of businessmen? Where are the business groups talking about, look, this is preventive law, and what happened to innocent until proven guilty, and so on? This is morally outrageous. That's what doesn't exist, and that's what needs to exist. Um, what needs to happen, I think, in a, in a Today, in thinking in a contemporary context in the battle for freedom, business has to stand up for itself. And it has to stand up against the regulatory state, which is the, the major way in which business is shackled today, I think. Uh, it's not and, and the taxes and so on aren't good. But what we have is a massive, massive regulatory state. And to challenge that is a, I mean, I don't want to downplay that this is a risky thing to do to challenge the regulatory state. Um, and for businesses to start to do it is, I think it's enormously risky. It, I think there's no question the whole alphabet soup of regulatory agencies will try all kinds of things. Um, they will, th I mean, they'll threaten the person's money and wealth. They'll even threaten and maybe even succeed in destroying the company, even sending some people to jail. Um, well, I think that would happen. Um, but any battle for freedom, past or present, if you think of the American Revolution, the fight against slavery, women's suffrage, challenging Jim Crow, self, and so on, all had enormous risks 
um, and had these kinds of episodes and wars. I mean, if you think just taking on Jim Crow. This is inherent in what a battle for freedom looks like and what a battle for justice looks like. And it would be that there has to be businesses and business people, men and women, willing to take this kind of risk. But I, I think nothing short of that uh, can work in terms of a real fight for freedom. And so what the Institute is interested in, I mean, one of the things in the sort of policy public world that we're interested in the next five to 15 years is helping that process along of helping to get uh, business people and various kinds of businesses willing to expose what the regulatory state actually does to them. In private, whether it's in the financial sector, in the medical sector, you can get business people in effect bitching about the regulators in the, I mean, day to day in their offices telling them what loans they can do, what research they can and cannot engage in. That has to become public. And it has to become public that this is outrageous that this is going on. Um, and absent that, I think uh, thinking of how movements and causes work, uh, it, you can't succeed. But the flip side is, if you put the whole battle in terms of freedom, justice, and civil rights, and civil rights for business and for business people. I mean, Ayn Rand called big business America's persecuted minority, and she meant that. No, it wasn't just like a flip, colorful way of putting the point. She meant that. And what's necessary when that's the way you're treated is a stand for justice. But I, the flip side is that what American history shows is if you make that kind of stand, it's possible to succeed. And the Institute's interested in helping bring that about, because I think it's necessary in the battle for freedom today. Okay, let me close there. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.